Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. First of all, to go through this, you'll notice that in the verses 11 through 16, which talk about the census details, about the whole half shekel atonement, when you, when you, every time you get counted, another shekel is, or half shekel must be given to account or pay for your counting process. When we're dealing with censuses, it's not the same as we do modern day today census because today the government does their thing, whatever they want to do, that's their business. However, when it comes to counting in God's time and God's people, he has rules of how it's done. So we can debate whether it's right or wrong. It doesn't make a difference. When God says it's done this way, therefore it becomes right. And but he, he requires, of course, half shekel, which is a becca, uh, given to, in order to do that. Now, you will notice that when he commands that half shekel be taken, that a becca be taken, it winds up going to one purpose, which is to the tent meeting, the creation of the tent meeting, the, 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 the tabernacle being built. They're gonna, they'll explain to you what's to use later on as far as the silver is melted down and made sockets and such for the posts and such. They'll, they'll all use it. So the shekel is not for necessarily the benefit of the priests per se, but rather the benefit of the tabernacle itself, which in, its, in and of its function is supposed to benefit everybody. So the idea is you are paying this fee for being counted, but the counting process is then used to benefit you indirectly. Hope that makes sense. Um, if David, as you wrote, most of you know the story about King David, when he counted everybody uh, back when, oh crud, I forgot where it's at off the top of my head. Anyway, he counted and Joab, his, his uh, first commander said, don't do this, it's a bad idea, but he did so anyway. He counted, and there's a lot of reasons of why we have Chronicles as well as Kings both discuss this particular topic. Uh, Kings claims God induced David to do so, and Chronicle says Hasatan induced David to do so. It doesn't really matter which one. The point is David was done to do so, and of course it, it made occasion for God to, to strike them. If David had done so and did what he was supposed to do, which was the, the, the redeeming process, the half-shekel fee for being counted, there's a good probability, since that would be following the commandment of God, that there would not have been a plague on David's time. But David did not do a half-shekel accounting, at least that's, it does not record of doing so, Therefore, we didn't do one, hence the plague. So there's a probability he did not do a half shekel, as would be the commandment. If he did do one, then his process of counting is not necessarily evil or wrong, because he would have followed exactly what the Torah said. But as we already know about King David, he followed the Torah mostly, meaning he went up to a point that didn't, didn't get the details quite right all the time. Uh, he made there a few errors, well, a lot of errors, that he made throughout his life. By the way, I'm going to fly through some of this section because I want to jump to toward the tail end of our tour portion. There's, there's, there's three areas I want to focus on. So I'm going to jump through first the different portions. If you have a specific question about an area, then let me know. Daniel, just a yes. moment. Um, I'm going to unmute um, Anne since she's calling yes. in maybe to see if she has any questions. That's fine. Anne, too. are you there? No, she can hear or not. Anne, can you hear us? She can't, flag, she can't okay. flag herself. Yes. Uh, yeah, so no, I, uh, do, do you have any questions uh, before we no, get it, charging? The only thing was um, it, some, you know, person came on, you know, and said, 
I guess your time is up on this message thing or something. I don't know. Oh, oh, that's a strange thing. She's she's she's, she's a telephone call in, right? She's yeah. not a uh, a login. Right. right. No, it's just uh, right. Like uh, I don't know. It's just telling me the time element. Oh. I don't know if they only give you an hour or they give you more than that. Hmm. Uh, but, well, but we'll I'm, have to, I'm we'll still have to on, that. so I'm okay. Yeah. Okay, uh, great. So I'll just stick you back on mute. Is that okay? Yeah, perfect. Yeah, we'll we'll check in. So Don's yes, got a question. Don's. Go ahead, Don. Yeah, I want to ask you. I'm sorry I didn't get my question in a little bit earlier, but uh, after the uh, golden calf, uh, the Levites, I think, uh, killed about three thousand people. Correct. But then I think, if I uh, heard it correctly, then the next day he, he uh, the Lord, uh, gave them this plague. <laughs> Correct. So what? What was that all about? Why kill 3,000 and then give them a plague or vice versa? You got any questions? I mean, you understand? Know yes, I yes. Okay, so that's an interesting, interesting section. You will note that, um, as we've discussed at different times of the past, Moses uses the opportunity to speak on God's behalf without we actually recording that God said so. So, for example, Moses commanded the Levites, sorry, they were with him. Thus says, Jehovah, each man grab a sword and runs the camping and start killing people. Note, there's no record of God doing that. In fact, God sent Moses down. We just got to deal with the people that, that are there, what they're doing and how they're doing it. God doesn't tell him, go slaughter anybody. But Moses cites God as a citation, indicating that the authority to do so is from God, though we don't have a record of God ever saying so. Uh, you'll note that Moses does that a couple of times throughout his storyline, throughout his life, or the tail end of his life. And Toward the tail end of it, when he starts doing so, it gets more um, hairy for him, so to speak. Meaning, speaking on God's behalf, uh, God gets a little more stringent on doing so, hence the rock and, and all the details there with the striking of the rock and the words that, God, that Moses chose. But early on, God is more relenting or more forgiving on Moses' use of his name. That, that's how it appears to be. And it's not just that. Since there's a couple other times Moses is the same thing. So you will note that in Moses' solution, his solution was twofold. Number one, he had them drink the gold, the golden calf water that he ground up into powder and made everybody drink it. His second solution was to slaughter through the people with the swords and have them kill a, a number of people. I don't know which ones were killed. Now, that's the inherent problem. I'm a man. I don't know which ones to kill, do I? So if there's, let's pretend, there's 3,000 people that did something bad. I don't know what they are, which who did what, you can debate that. He goes through and Moses kills 3,000 people. Is it the same 3,000 people? I don't know. Moses may or may not know. The people may or may not know. You don't know necessarily if you killed the right 3,000. Or maybe there was 5,000 something bad, or 10,000, and you killed only three. Or maybe there's only 1,000, you killed three. Who knows? The point is, the amount that was slaughtered where they were killed does not necessarily correlate, actually we know because God says it didn't, correlate to the exact ones who offended God. So God replies to Moses, I'm using this term loosely, Moses, that wasn't what I wanted, meaning he didn't, he didn't do the job the way I, that way I would do it. And though God then says, I will make account of who I wish to make account with when he's, timed, when, he's, when he's ready to make an account for these people. And so his methodology was the plague he used. Now, when you're referring to plagues, when the God's getting a plague, it's not a plague of, oh no, someone's sick and has a cold. Plagues refer to death. So whatever 
death he sent to them, it was killing a certain number of people. And then God can select which particular ones he wanted addressed. What's shocking is Aaron. Aaron should have been, for all kind of, even Moses points out, Aaron, this was your responsibility. This was your job to do. And that you didn't stop them, you facilitated it. So the shocking part is that God didn't strike Aaron. That's what's interesting. So, and it's very fascinating to watch this because in this Torah portion, we have the, the, the oral statement from God describing himself. When he describes himself, it's one of the biggest foundations that all Judaism and Christianity stand on, is that description. All Christian philosophies, all Christian beliefs, all Messiah's work stands on this description that God gives of himself. In the whole, when he says, you know, mercy on thousands, and you know, and it, it's all stood upon that statement. That's what gives us the mechanism which all Messiah shows up and does all of his work is based on what that is. And of course, Apostle Paul reiterates the exact same thing in Corinthians regarding the same topic. This, this is a, the core foundation, or one of the core foundations, of how Messiah was able to do what he did. So when God describes himself that way, using those terms, those word phrases, then it tells us that he is not quite what we picture him to be. Meaning the Israelites came out of Egypt and they came out of this, this God that killed people, a bunch of plagues and did you know, part of the sea and all this different stuff. All these great things that God can do, this great power, which all resulted in dying, somebody dying. Uh, it, there's other aspects to him. So we go back to Aaron and say, okay, God, why didn't you strike Aaron? Because Aaron was one of the key figures of that golden calf story. God has something else in mind. It isn't about slaughtering a bunch of people. It's something else he wanted to accomplish and do, which was showing us something that he did for or on Aaron's behalf, which we'll get to more of that as we get there. We'll approach more into what God was doing with Aaron and why Aaron was not amongst those whom God selectively chose to have a plague strike. So hopefully that makes sense. So Moses did a partial uh, working with the, with the golden powder and of course, the slaughtering of 3,000, that was not sufficient, those two tasks. So God came along and said, well, there's a plague that goes with that and other stuff, which we'll learn later about when God takes care of himself. Now, I don't know how many the plague killed. doesn't record it. doesn't really matter. Whatever, however he chose to kill the plague, that's what he did. Does that make sense? Hopefully it does. Okay. Let's see here. All right, so let's, let's move forward here. Uh, in the foot washing portion, it has uh, Exodus 30 from 17 to through 21, discusses when the priests go to foot washing. Uh, now, this, this process of foot washing for the hands as well as your feet of Aaron and his sons, all the priests, they have to do this when they approach God, when they approach the temple, in particular when they're doing altar offerings uh, on, on the altar. Um, now, Messiah did the same process. Now, what I want to point out to us, or to everybody, if those are, I'm sure almost all of you are already fully aware of this, um, and Messiah, of course, washed his disciples' feet on uh, the night that he was, uh, that he was uh, or the last evening before he was arrested, that, that night he was arrested. Um, and in that process of doing so, note that it, Messiah did something very specific in that, that, in that procedure. So when it comes to washing feet, and washing hands for the priests, that was reserved for the priesthood. So Aaron and his Levites are here in the priesthood. That's not the same as all the other people down here. 
So other people don't necessarily wash their feet to wash their hands, but Aaron and his priests, his family does when they have to go for the altar, what do they have to do? So Aaron's priests up here. What Messiah did, which is, sounds initially strange, is he took his disciples and he elevated them up on that night by washing their feet. He just placed them symbolically at the same place the priesthood is. Which we ask ourselves, why? What does that do? What's the point of that? Why would he raise up his disciples to be the same category, symbolically speaking, as the priests? Not saying they are priests. I'm not discussing that. We're saying the, the same act being used, which, which reserved for one category of people, being applied to another category of people who do not or are not part of Aaron's line. Well, it's an interesting process, which, which he chose to do so. When the process which they were doing, note, what was the next event that was supposed to occur? Well, the offering of Passover, which is recorded here, of course, discussing at Exodus, the, when the, the Passover was coming up too, uh, when, we, when God's speaking here at Exodus 30. In the process of doing this, Moses symbolically knew he obviously was going to be slaughtered soon, and that was going to be coming up soon. That was, that was approaching the next day or, day or two. So he was going to be dying, and all these priests who would normally be priests, but all these disciples would now be raised up equivalent to a priesthood, similar or similar in nature and symbolically. Now we can go through the book of Acts and Romans, the various other tasks and we can, uh, section, we can see what these apostles and disciples actually did, and they did precisely what that was, and that they took the people, the ordinary people, and separated the barrier between them and God by addressing just what a priest is supposed to do back in the book of Exodus who discusses priesthood. So spiritually speaking, the disciples actually did what the normal Levitical priesthood Aaron's line is supposed to do after Messiah died. So Messiah with his washing hands symbolically brought his disciples up to be similar to the priests. And while they were up here, they made themselves equivalent in their actions to match what the priests were doing for the people. Not through offerings, as the priests have to do it, but through their symbolic or their process of spiritual offerings to people themselves, cleansing them and healing them and repairing their needs and their, their desires. So that is a very interesting process. So in many, in many, not many, sorry, scratch that. Few people, my family included, <laughs> we do, we still continue on the process of foot washing at, at the Passover time period. Um, not everybody does so. It's not, not, not a condemnation or, or an advocate for one or the other. But we have to do so. And the idea is that, hey, if I am in my process of trying to train to be a priest of God, to follow God as best I can, then I will go through the process of doing so. Not because the foot washing makes me a priest. It doesn't. It doesn't do anything. But the nature of the act of remembering what it meant and what it means still today, still to me at least, I still apply that and use it. Hopefully it makes sense. So as I use one of these major sections of this a foot washing process and, and, and reapplied it or applied it again to a whole new group of people who were not originally part of Aaron's priesthood. Uh, I'm going to jump a little faster through some of the stuff because I don't want to cover all the details because I want to jump to a question that I have for those of you because this is an interesting scenario that uh, the apostle Yaakov uh, James brought up. Uh, we'll get there in a minute. The so next portion after that obviously covers like oils and anointing the, the, the uh, uh, the altar and anointing the incense and the table and all this stuff like all this, this oil concoction. You'll notice the oil concoction, this oil for anointing, 
there are some things that are anointed, some things are not anointed. So some things that are anointed, of course, are obviously listed off the different furnishing items, as well as the high priest himself is anointed this way. If I recall correctly, the king, because the king, the only two people are anointed, by the way, the only two people who are anointed in your Bibles, in your, in your Tanakhs, is the high priest and the king. There are no other people being anointed. All right? So every anointed course means a Messiah, a Messiah, a Mashiach, a Messiah is being anointed one, is being, is being created. So every high priest is supposed to symbolize Messiah and every king is supposed to symbolize Messiah. So the one, they're, they're both being anointed. So when it comes to anointing, we anoint, the other people get anointed as high priest, and later on we'll learn that you know, the kings get anointed too. Um, but there's a stipulation. Ordinary people aren't. So we don't anoint ordinary people according to this situation. Now we can we can debate why and the details behind it. Meaning, some argue, well, it's just that this this particular concoction is anointed to the people. Maybe it's some other formula you can use, not this particular one. Or, as is in Jewish tradition, they don't anoint people. Uh, the, 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 the Tanakh does not give a precedence for anointing someone. Uh, for any other reason, unless you happen to be the high priest or the king. So there isn't a precedence prior to, to, to the New Testament. So now I have to ask you the question, which just think about it. You have to answer it because obviously half of you really can't answer it that well because we're on a, a video conference. Um, go to James, book of James, chapter 5. James is a small book. I have a time finding it. One of my favorite books because there's really cool stuff in there. But James chapter 5 discusses something very interesting. So, and we have to ask ourselves, what's going on? So there is no precedence, per se, in the Tanakh of, I mean, from Revelation through Malachi. Um, there's, no, or, there's no precedence of someone being anointed for, you know, I'm sick or I have a, a broken body part, nothing of that for healing purposes. The only precedence is we have people being anointed as king or being anointed as priests, but that's pretty much it. There's really not much else for anointing for humans. So in James chapter 5, it discusses something which James had brought up. Uh, this is James chapter 5, jumping down to verse uh, 13. Now this is, this is, uh, this is uh, an assignment James is giving out to people, hey, you will now, you should do this on your own behalf or in your own areas. So James chapter 5, verse 13, it says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he'll, bring, he'll be forgiven. I'm going to go through all of it because James, this, I'm, I jumped into the tail end of James comes with a lot of different topics. But this concept, okay, so... Uh, Obviously, somebody who's who's sick, or sorry, who's cheerful, happy, all these various things. What's the anointing process about? You will notice that he points out that if you're sick, or so, so who, who's uh, uh, whatever the sicknesses are. Now, mind you, I I'm not arguing every sickness because I don't know the details of what he's referring to. It could be some internal organ failure type of sick, or we're discussing like you know, the common cold. You can debate that. I'll let you decide what, what you think it is. But we're, we're discussing somebody sick for anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. 
And he explains, and the prayer of the faith will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has come to sins, he will be forgiven. So is James arguing that the anointing process is what saves the sick, even though he's recommended to do so? Or is he pointing out that the prayer of the faith will save the sick? Well, clearly says the prayer of the faith. That's the, one who's to, that's the process which he's saying is, is helping. So why anoint? Like I said before, the Tanakh has no precedence for sicknesses being anointed, meaning from Genesis through the, through the end, it does not discuss, oh, someone's sick or even an organ failure. When I refer to sicknesses, by the way, me personally, I look at them as like some major illness, not some like the common cold. My personal perspective in my head envisions like, oh, someone has you know, heart failure or somebody who's so, some liver cancer, so, some, some serious disease going on that requires an intervention. Uh, but that's my opinion. You may disagree. In the case of this, he's not referring to anointing healing the person. He refers to the prayers the faithful heal the person. So why anoint? Interesting question. In the case of this instance, which when it comes to the high priest's anointing, we don't get to anoint, meaning that formula that was given, where it's reserved only for the high priest and the, the furnishing items, not for people. I'm not saying we shouldn't anoint people. Don't get me wrong. My point is, think about it for a minute. Just consider this concept. What's the nature of anointing, and why would you use it for someone who is ill? And what purpose does it serve? If the Tanakh does not give us an explanation, we're a little bit at the guessing stage, because without an explanation from the Tanakh, we have to interpret details based on what the Tanakh, or sorry, based on what the New Testament discusses where anointing comes from and why to do it. Because it is not within the Jewish tradition, Israelite tradition, to anoint anyone with oil, regardless of what the circumstances are. It's just not in the tradition to do so, because it's not recorded. Uh, yes, Don, you have your, your question up. Go ahead. Oh, you're still muted. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, that's interesting that you would say that in, in other uh, areas, and specifically I'm referring to uh, uh, in the Ayurvedic area, uh, and, and in this scripture here, it says with oil. It doesn't say specifically what oil. No. Right. But I know that in the Ayurveda, they use oil a lot mm-hmm. to uh, put over the body for healing purposes. Isn't right, it? right. So, Wait, which is interesting. Yeah, it, it's curious where the tradition come from. I realize they also anoint people when, as we have recorded here with Messiah's death, tried to anoint his body and such after he had perished to, to whether it's for smell or for whatever reasons. I don't really say what the reason is. It's interesting where the tradition started, where it came from to do so. Um, now, there's two comments I have on this particular topic um, regarding the anointing of someone for illnesses. Now, mind you, He's advocating the anointing, but not the anointing here in James, not anointing to fix someone. Here's the prayer is what fixes them. The anointing is just one component that's being used possibly as a tool or as a, a, some other component. There's two areas which I view, this is me personally, Daniel H's opinion, don't agree with me, that's fine, I'm cool with that. This is my opinion. Um, the two areas which uh, oil is applied that makes sense to me in my head. Well, the primary area is going to be, of course, is what is James thinking when he specifies this? Now, mind you, when you deal with anything in the Tanakh or Torah or in the New Testament, 
the time period is also relevant to what's being said, not just you know what is. So you have to pay attention to what's being talked about. So in the, this case, uh, there, it's concept, meaning in modern-day Christian philosophy, not saying it's right or wrong, saying it is, the belief that oil is symbolic of, uh, of, of uh, faith being put upon them. Uh, now, I don't, buy, I don't subscribe that viewpoint, but some people do view that point. In which case, the idea would be that the anointing process would try to put, uh, symbolically speaking, encourage a person to have faith, which is a form of trust, faith upon something that, that in the prayer, the prayer of the faithful, sorry, prayer of the justified, the righteous person, will be uh, beneficial to this individual. That's an acceptable viewpoint. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I personally don't subscribe to that viewpoint because I don't view oil as a symbol of faith or necessarily as, a, as, as that symbol. It doesn't make sense in my head when it comes to what the Tanakh discusses what oil is used for. However, in the other hand, the Tanakh does give me answers of what is oil used for. Anointing of Messiah. So the functionality of oil to anoint Messiah, whether it be the high priest or whether it be the king, anointing oil is used for anointing Messiah. So if I have an individual who's ill, and I put oil on that individual who's ill, just dump it on, on top, they're all nice and you know, soaked up in oil running over the place, whatever I want to do, I am symbolically anointing them as a Messiah. Now, granted, not they're going to you know, save the world, no. The, 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 the act of me anointing them is the act of as messiahing them. I, it's not really a, a verb, but anyway. The idea of, of putting something, creator, making them a messiah. Not they're going to save anything, not to become the messiah referring to, but just a messiah, an anointed one, which messiah means anointed one. So I am symbolically putting a part of anointed one or part of anointed, anointing process onto someone who is ill. What did messiah do? while he was walking the earth, what he was most known for, but the people followed him over and over again, crowds would follow him, people who were, were they all healthy and happy and content before he showed up? No. What were they doing? They were sick, suffering, dying, blind, ill. In some cases, they were hungry because <laughs> he did feed a few of them. Uh, what he, when he was walking on the earth and doing different stuff, most of the people, we're not referring to the high priests, the people who are in charge of the country, we're referring to the ordinary schmoes who are walking around doing the thing. Most people followed him because of the miracles he did. Uh, someone was paralyzed. This person was blind. That person couldn't hear. This person was dead. All these things he did, he saved them. He brought them back to life again to restore them. So him being Messiah, and mind you, he pointed out to his disciples, unless, who am I? He kept asking them, who am I? And some of them said, oh, you're John, or you're this, or that, whatever. And I think it was, I think it was Peter. Um, said, Because well, he asked, who do you think I am? He said, well, I think you're, you're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. And, he said, well, and Messiah pointed out, well, God revealed this to you. Meaning, I, I didn't tell you this. God revealed this within your heart or in your mind, your spirit, that I am, I, I am the anointed one. So his process of healing people was most of his actions. Now, I'm not referring to his words necessarily. He taught a lot too, but a lot of his actions were based upon healing people. So the anointed one, Messiah, healed bodies, healed humans. So if I am going to take anointing, the same oil or not, some other oil, it doesn't make a difference, 
an oil process of anointing Messiah, I am symbolically taking this anointed Messiah, my Messiah, the one who came and died for me, I am taking a piece of him and pouring it on the sick person. Does that make sense? Hopefully it does. So symbolically, James is taking a chunk of Messiah, that's a bad choice of words, a, a, a spirit or a component of Messiah and putting them onto someone who is ill. So that ill person will symbolically receive Messiah's hand of touching them. You are now healed. That's the idea. So that's, how I, that's my viewpoint, how I view James's instruction on anointing. The process of anointing is not so much the oil itself. It's a process of taking one who is anointed, in this case Messiah, because he can't physically come back down and touch people again. He already died and is up in heaven and such. But he can't come back and touch people again. But his oil, the component that belongs to him, his unique character, the Messiah component itself, that can be put upon someone in the form of anointing. That's my viewpoint. Uh, you may disagree with it perfectly fine, but that's how I view it. I think that's what James is viewing it too, just based on the fact he is so adamant in following the Torah to the letter as best as possible. He would likely not arbitrarily take something out of the Torah without a good reason to knowing why it's done. Now, I'm not saying he, uh, he, that James is saying you should use the exact formula used for anointing. It doesn't say what oil to use. It maybe use something else. I don't know. So the formula was probably still reserved for the Torah. I don't think James would have ever consider breaking that instruction but the idea of using the process of anointing which shows up in the new testament but is not there in the tanakh it shows up after messiah was anointed after he became and became as a being then anointing oil being put upon other people became a a, a common event within christianity and of course also any, any other messianic jewish uh, group viewpoints hopefully that makes we- sense Go ahead. Yes, so we have a question here from Tammy. Mm-hmm. It's actually more like a comment. Yeah. But um, you got me thinking because in high church traditions, such as the Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, Episcopalians, usually they anoint you when you are baptized. At oh, really? Birth. Yeah, I'm not familiar with or Shortly after birth, baptized. and when you bring the child to be baptized? Mm-hmm. Usually, right after the baptism, they also do what is called chrismation, which is to put anointing oil on that child. If someone comes into the church as an adult, it's um, like when I initially became an Episcopalian at one point in my life, I was Episcopalian. And so, since I had already been baptized, they didn't rebaptize me, but they did chrismate me, which is they put a little bit of oil like on my forehead and so on. Mm-hmm. So, these um, anointings, if you will, are done on every person when they first come to faith in Yeshua interesting. in those traditions. That's interesting. It's a tradition. Those, those traditions are, are they're, they're, I've, I was, I was uh, uh, reading about somebody who came from a, a Catholic tradition earlier this week uh, discussing his. Thank you. <laughs> I, I was looking at, I was looking at a Catholic tradition on, um, on, on what uh, what they came went through when they were child. Now they were they were born in a Catholic church, so there was it was they didn't you know convert to one. They actually jumped out of it later on. Um, but yeah, they they had a similar tradition. They, they there was the a, a christening process, or whatever, and oil. And they had some. He described it, it said like they had to 
put across certain spots, like across your forehead and in different locations, like a big, like a, a big cross on your body. It's a strange, I don't understand all of it because I'm not Catholic and I'm sure there's probably good reasons for it. Um, but that has other, other traditions. And he pointed out that it was, it was, it's strange to observe from an outsider viewpoint to watch it happen to why, why you're doing it. It's a strange process. Um, and that's interesting because that tradition comes not from James's instruction, which discusses when somebody is sick or ill. That's talking to somebody who's just playing alive, um, which is, it, 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 it's, it's a curiosity. Um, I'm not saying that their practices are right or wrong. I'm saying that they're an interesting practice, uh, not, which, not one which I am terribly familiar with, per se, but it is an interesting practice. Well, in the high church tradition or in Christian tradition, we, in a sense, all of us are sick because we have inherited original sin. Oh, that's, that's or ancestral fair. Ancestral okay. sin. Right, right, right. So we all are needing healing, mm-hmm. spiritual healing, physical healing. We always are in need, particularly spiritual healing. We are always in need of that. That's curious. Yeah. So you anoint them when they're when you're baptizing them. Either you're baptizing an infant if you're in that high church tradition, or like an Episcopalian tradition, you would be baptizing them as an adult or whatever, and anointing them at the same time. But it's the idea that we all are sick, sick of some our souls form. and need the anointing of Yeshua to heal us from that. Interesting traditions. Yes, Don. Or... And, Go ahead. Yeah. and uh, along with that, the, uh, the anointing oil is symbolic of the, of the spirit of God. Mm-hmm. I've, uh, heard that, I've heard that a lot of times. And, right? and also they would, uh, in Catholic tradition, mm-hmm. when the person is because they have infant baptism, then they also have uh, what they consider the sacrament of confirmation, which is usually done um, when the uh, age of reason or, or, or you know, um, uh, 12, 13 years old, around there. Um, and it's a statement of faith. In other words, you may not have known what you were promised to do as a baby, but now you're accepting this as your own responsibility as an adult, that this is your faith. And, so they, and they, they anoint a, a um, cross on the forehead. And mm. it's usually done by a bishop. Mm. In fact, I think it's supposed to, it has to be done by a bishop. And, you know, so it's often done to a bunch of people at once. Interesting. It's, it, it's curious how all these various traditions have come about over the years, um, but it, it's still a fascinating process. I, I'm not saying traditions are good or bad, they're just interesting how, the, how each group has created or built up or, 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 or modified or created something that has originally was not necessarily for one task, but then was just reinterpreted or reused in other applications later on. Um, it's, 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 it's interesting to me, more of a, of a, of a perspective of, what's the right word? Um, uh, a curiosity as opposed to a, a, either a, a, a condemnation. No, no, it's just curiosity as far as where they come from. So now it's more interesting to me because I want to talk about uh, the first, well, actually the, the second of these, these topics. Um, I will not uh, discuss all the details regarding uh, the incense spices, you know, that which, or what each spice is. I realize the vast of your Bibles translate the oil spices and such and, and, and the oils at different names. Most are pretty well known. We know what they are. Uh, they still use the same words today for the same oils. But uh, I won't discuss all the details or even the portions being divvied up because that's not part of my discussion today. What I want to talk about, however, is uh, chapter 31 
of Exodus. 31, this is the first part of it. We touched the, 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 the not first part, what part of it, about uh, uh, the Shabbat. So in 31, of course, it discusses the fact he has uh, the, um, the, 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 the two individuals who are going to be focusing their attention upon building and the designs, the craft and such, and all the various people who are, who are involved with them. However, God does point a stipulation that even though you're doing all this, don't forget that even though you're doing something on my behalf, on the, temp, the temple, building that was good and holy and just and whatever else, don't forget that this is still a Shabbat. Don't neglect the Shabbats during them. And <clears throat> shall I bring <coughs> me, something up to you? Uh, most of us are fully aware of this because obviously today's Shabbat, we're all here, but uh, we're, we're all there, wherever you all are at. Uh, we still have, we still do our Shabbats, right? Cause we know what they are. We, we, we value them for importance. Now, different parts in the, in the, in the Torah, it discusses different reasons, meaning by primarily two given, as well as why Shabbat is observed. The first and foremost reason, of course, the first one given was the ten, sorry, the, the six days of creation, the seventh day being the day of rest, which was back in the book of Genesis, you know, the first chapter or so. And then this later on, I believe it's in Deuteronomy, I think it's Deuteronomy, this guy's the reason for Shabbat. An additional reason is that God took you out of Egypt and gave you rest. So there's two different reasons God, God has given. What I would point out to in chapter 31 of Exodus, verse 12, it jumps into this process. Uh, Jehovah said to Moses, speak to the children of Israel, saying, uh, surely you shall observe my Shabbats, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations to know that I am Jehovah who makes you holy. You shall observe the Shabbat, for it is holy to you. It's a desecrators should put to death for whoever does work on it that soul should put cut off from among its people for six days work be done the seventh day is the day of complete rest it is sacred to Yehovah whoever does work on the seventh day should put to rest to de- put to death the children of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to make the Sabbath an eternal covenant for, for the generations between me and the children of Israel is a sign forever for the six-day period Yehovah made heaven and earth on seventh day he rested and was refreshed and of course, we have that in our Shabbat, which we start out for every Shabbat. In the Shema, we have it, that as well as this verse is, is, is uh, recited as well in, our, in, our, in the uh, Jonathan C. Tell's um, song, uh, which we play it every Shabbat. Note, his citation for reasoning for Shabbat is the six days of creation. Now, who does that affect? Who, whoever was created or whatever was created in the first six days of creation and the seventh day God rested, that means that this, this, this reason, the purpose of the day, would apply to all those who are affected by the first six days of creation. So we ask you, who is excluded from the first six days of creation? Dumb question, right? Everyone's part of the first six days of creation. <laughs> there was nobody excluded. So the whole point is, when God uses this citation, because obviously it's recorded both in Genesis as well as here, citation as the reason for Shabbat, it includes Everyone who is, in effect, I should say, everyone who was created from the first six days onward. So all mankind. Now, even though God's pointing out this is assigned to the children of Israel for them to observe it, however, the citation of where it comes from was from everyone, meaning because it affects everyone. And I bring this up purposefully because Isaiah 56, which Messiah then cites later on, is a major cornerstone of one of the reasons, I should say, one of the primary reasons, of how Messiah dealt with the people that were disobedient. So if we jump to, uh, let's do Messiah's reference first, because uh, his reference would jump to, well, it's recorded a couple of times in the, in the Gospels. 
But uh, Messiah's reference to this 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 concept, this statement, is reference which he which is a recitation of Isaiah six uh, later on. But let's jump to the one of the one of the references is Matthew twenty one. In the Matthew twenty one, Messiah does something and says a statement. Now that statement comes from the prophets, whereas what's being said for what he cites it. It's not just recorded once the prophets, recorded a couple of times, actually a number of different times. So when he says something, makes a quote, it is my opinion that when Messiah quotes something from the scripture, he's not just trying to cherry pick the one sentence he's using. He's using that sentence as a reference to the entire passage, the scripture, that sentence that is included within that scripture. So for example, as a good example, um, Messiah, when he's dying on the, on the stake or cross, whatever you believe, he says, uh, 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 my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? That phrase. Well, that comes from the scripture, which is, I think it's Psalms 22. It's the entire Psalm talks about him. He only phrases the first, like, first, first line. But you read the whole book, oh, the whole chapter, well, clearly it's all about him and the whole process in which he's going to be killed and how he's being died. So even though he only cites a particular sentence, or a particular quote from the scripture, the entire passage is what he's referring to without having to recite the whole passage. So in this, Matthew 21, Matthew 21 jumped to verse, uh, we'll, we'll jump in the middle of it, so verse 12. And so when Messiah went to the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves, he said to them, it is written, my house should be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then, of course, the blind, blind men uh, came to the, the blind and lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. The chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things he did, and the children crying out to the temple and saying, Hosanna the highest, son of David, they were indignant. He said to them, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you ever read... Out of the mouth of babes, nursing infants, you will be perfected. He left them and went out to the city of Bethany, to Bethany, and he lodged there. So in the first section, which Messiah quoted there, he says, Ascend, that's verse 13 of Matthew 21. It says, of course, um, hey, my house we call the house of prayer. That's recorded a couple of different places throughout our Tanakhs, but the one I want to reference since today in particular is Isaiah 56 which is recorded there, Isaiah 56, this is a very famous uh, 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 chapter for different reasons. Isaiah 56, it, there's, there's a section or a passage this is included in. The first eight verses, which we're going to read uh, read now. So, so if I take this statement that Messiah said in Matthew 21 and say, well, it came also from, since it's recorded again in Isaiah 56, the first eight verses, let's read the whole section because this is how it's tied to our Torah portion. Isaiah 56, verse 1, says, Thus says Jehovah, keep justice into righteous, righteousness, for my salvation is about to come, and my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the human who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Do not let the son of a foreigner who has joined himself to Jehovah speak, saying, Jehovah has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. For thus says Jehovah, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, 
and choose what is pleasing to me, and hold fast my covenant. Even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name, better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to Jehovah to serve him and to love the name of Jehovah to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house should be called a house of prayer for all nations. Yahweh God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, thus says, Yet I will gather to him others besides those who were gathered to him. I'm going to stop there for a minute. So in this portion, we have a couple of people being cited or being examined. In this case, obviously, it says to those who do justice and righteousness, those the human who, who, who follows the first three verses, bless the man, the, the human, who lays hold of and keeps his Sabbath as well as the covenant. He cites not just the human, which is the son of man, most people say the son of man, but the human. He also cites the son of the foreigner. Well, who's the son of a foreigner? Well, son of a Gentile. So he points out the Gentiles are also blessed according to the same manner, as well as the eunuch, one who has been sliced up, is also blessed according to the same manner. So in Isaiah 56, which Messiah uses a reference that's, that comes from here, as well as other places too, regarding the house of prayer, that's what Messiah, what's Messiah is telling us. The house of prayer, he's expecting or intending it to be a place for both all humans who practice justice and righteousness, all humans, which includes a foreigner, the, the Gentiles, who, who, who honor or keep the Sabbath and keep the, the covenant that, he did, that, the, he, that God has created, as well as the eunuch, which has been a, a defiled human uh, in a permanent way, uh, that they're also affected similarly, that they are also blessed when they keep these, these covenants, these examples. So, of course, that goes back to our Torah portion, which God says, you will not forget my Sabbath, my Shabbat. So although we may run across people across the world in different ways, different spectrums of life, and different perspectives, the Shabbat was not designed to be isolated strictly for the children of Israel. Clearly, both Isaiah gives a clear explanation of what it was designed for, that all men were included. Solomon, of course, is the exact same thing when he, when he dedicates the temple originally. So they're all designed or intended for not just the Jew, but also the Gentile included, to be brought into both the same Shabbat, the same observation, the same covenant that's being discussed. And Messiah, of course, reiterates the same thing by using the phrase, using that statement of ours, what he's referring to, what God's house was turned into, that you have defiled it, and it's not to be, not to be that way. So we come across the Shabbat as an example. Uh, Gentiles are supposed to keep the same reasoning that a, a Jew is supposed to keep. There's no real difference. We already know that intuitively as well as it explains over and over again that there is uh, one law. There is not a law for a Jew and a law for a Gentile. What confuses most Christian Gentiles, I'm not saying all of them, but most of them, is the confusing part is where, well, when did, you know, what the Messiah was done, sorry, the law was done away with or, or, or a lot of these different rules and, and, and explanations as far as how not to keep Shabbat or not to keep the holy days, or not to do anything that, that, that is stated, based upon, of course, obviously, as New Testament authors describe, which we're going to jump into one of them in a few minutes, 
which is the Apostle Paul, one of his descriptions, which I like his description. He jumps into this and does a great job in 2 Corinthians. Um, we've got a, a, a portion of our Torah portion. So the New Testament authors, I would argue, actually, I'm pretty well convinced, that uh, they weren't ignorant of any of this stuff. They weren't ignorant of Isaiah. They're not ignorant of the, t- the commandments. They're not ignorant of um, what Messiah taught or how he lived his life. Quite the opposite. They're very well versed in it. So the, the, the idea that somehow the New Testament authors come along and, and nullify or, or delete or alter it is preposterous. I'm pretty well convinced of that in my personal opinion. I do realize others tend to disagree uh, on different grounds based on translations. But anyhow, any questions so far? Hopefully not too many. So let's uh, check in with Anne and see. Anne, uh, do you have any her. questions? Am I here? No, I'm okay. okay. Thank okay. you. Okay. okay. We have to check in with her periodically because she can't tell us when she has a question. Yes, that's um, one of the options we have is a dial-in line, but uh, yeah. the functionality of being able to check in is limited. So. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Before I jump into what Apostle Paul talked about, because we'll get there in a minute, uh, I have another interesting question for you, which actually is not a question. It's a fascinating comment. So when does tradition overrule the Torah? It's your question. (laughs) It doesn't. Tradition does not overrule the Torah. Now, when do men, or women for that matter too, choose? tradition over a Torah quite frequently. Let's go to the golden calf section. There are two brilliant symbols being given to us, the golden calf. I call them brilliant because they, they do something fascinating. And this is again, another solution as far as answers for we get some later Torah portion explanation. Those of you who've read the Torah many times, you probably remember this. When a man is convinced or believes or suspects his wife uh, committed adultery on, with some other man, well, what's the requirement? He, he can't prove it. There's no witnesses, but he suspects it. So the Torah later on, I believe it's, I, I forgot exactly where the passage records it, but he has to bring it before the, 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 the temple and they take, uh, they, take uh, they write a bunch of curses on a piece of paper and then they, they scrape off the ink I'm sorry, shaking my table. Scrape off the ink, and they have they mix. It, I think they mix it with dust and such of the of the, the floor of the temple. The temple just to drink it. And then, if 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 correctly, her if if she commit adultery, her thigh rots and her belly falls. Some some, some I don't know the exact phrase. I, I can't remember the exact next statements. But it's it's a, it's a strange process as far as how that's done. Do you remember that? You remember that story? Hopefully, you do. Yes, yeah, it it's uh, Leviticus chapter twenty. Thank you, Leviticus twenty. Uh, yeah, so Leviticus chapter twenty, starting verse ten. I should yeah. If there out. is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And okay. uh, then it continues on. The penalty of, of the penalty of that process regarding the the the, the, the nature of, of testing or proving her out. So this grinding stuff. This basically is drinking dust water essentially. So. What did Moses do with the golden calf? He made gold dust water. It's a strange process, mind you, to make gold dust water. I, granted, I've never ground gold into dust. I, I'm not that wealthy to have gold dust, but if I was, 
they grind it into dust and I can't imagine drinking it, but whatever, maybe, maybe it tastes better than I can imagine. Um, however, if, if, you're, if you're drinking gold dust water, that's a strange punishment. Would you arguably isn't really necessarily a punishment per se, but it's a strange punishment in general, the gold dust water. But it's also a strange testing process for the suspected adulterous wife, right? I literally, does uh, ink and dust mixed with water uh, do anything to you? Well, by themselves, no. We eat dirty water all the time. It's called, you know, tap water. It's got a lot of stuff in it. <laughs> I'm yes, not sure uh, what Daniel, all the stuff, um, but go ahead. Uh, I misspoke. It's actually in Numbers chapter 5 is where you find this. It pretty Numbers much five. takes okay. up most of the chapter. Thank you. Because I, I thought cause Leviticus 20, 20 had to do with just, you know, you kill them. But that makes sense. Numbers 5. Uh, oh, suspected infidelity. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, so it goes through... Uh, you know, spoke to Moses saying, oh, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Unfaithfully, if a man lies, they're carnally, yada, yada, yada. If the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, uh, he becomes jealous of his wife, this, this is verse uh, 14 of Numbers 5, uh, or if the spirit of uh, him, when he becomes jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself, this man shall bring his wife to the priest. He shall bring the offering required for her, a tenth of the ephah of barley. Uh, he shall put no oil on it, no fragrances on it, because it's a grain of offering of jealousy. Remember, it's to bring iniquity. And of course, peace shall bring her near, center of the Lord. Peace shall take the holy water in the earthen vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle, put the water. Peace shall stand the woman, the water, uncover the woman's head, put the offering of remembrance in the hands, which is a grain offering of jealousy. The priest shall have it in his hand, the bitter water that brings a curse. We should put her under the oath and say to the woman, if no man is lame with you, if you've not gone astray to uncleanliness while under your husband's authority, be free from the water that brings a curse. If you have gone astray under your husband's authority, if you had defiled yourself and some other man has, other than husband has lame with you, then the priest shall put the woman under the oath, the curse. He shall say to the woman, the Lord make you a curse, an oath among your people. The Lord makes your thigh rot and your belly swell. May this water that bring, causes a curse to go in your stomach and make your belly swell, your thigh rot. No one shall say amen to it. The priest shall write the, the, these curses in a book. He shall scrape them off into the bitter water. He shall make the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse. And the water brings a curse shall enter her, become bitter. The priest shall take the grain offering in jealousy in the one's hand and shall wave the offering for the Lord and bring it to the altar. The priest shall then take a handful of the offering as a memorial portion, burn it at the altar, and afterwards make the woman drink the water. When he has made her drink the water, then it shall be if she has devout herself and behaved unfaithfully toward her husband, the water that brings a curse will enter her, become bitter, her belly will swell, her thigh will rot, the woman will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, she should be free and may conceive children. This law of jealousy when a, when a wife, uh, uh, a wife, when her husband under his authority goes astray. Until he comes upon him. So this whole process of the dust and the water and the curse and the offering and such, it's a strange process, a strange sequence of events that, that's recorded there. Because the, of them by themselves, without the hand of God in them, they themselves wouldn't do anything. Well, but also grinding this golden calf in water, making you drink that also doesn't actually do anything. However, the strange part is grinding it up into dust and making you drink the water is the common thread between both components. What does it tell us? Well, it tells us there's probably some symbolic connection between their golden calf worshiping and her adultery, right? 
that we already know from the prophets tell us over and over again, when you're going astray after other gods, God views that as spiritual adultery. It's the same thing. So we have this, 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 this source, this explanation at least, that Moses is, is, is acting out the process, though it's not given to us till Numbers 5, the same idea of this is a form of adultery, what you've done, how you've used this golden calf, which is, it, it, it's, it's nothing shocking. We all know this stuff, but it's still interesting to note that the symbol is being reused before, later on in Book of Numbers. Uh, the second part uh, I wish to, to uh, uh, list out to you regarding this golden calf process um, let's see, it's verse, uh, let's see, jump this real quick. Yeah, so in chapter 32, the early part, the very first uh, addressing of this golden calf, which is the next component, is the idea of idolatry. There are multiple forms of idolatry. We know there are multiple forms of idolatry. I don't have to bow down to a statue with a face and ears and eyes and nose for it to be idolatry. I can idolize a lot of things. In particular, I idolize clearly myself or another person. So in this instance, I'll point out who did the people of Israel idolize? I purposely lead, leading the audience because I said the word who. Uh, the people is verse, chapter, chapter 32 of Exodus, verse 1. The people saw that Moses had delayed in descending the mountain, and the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Raise up, make for us God." that will go before us. For this man, Moses, who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. This man who brought us up as the land of Egypt, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt? God did. But who are they attributing brought them up in the land of Egypt? The man. So we can see they are interested in looking for something. They used to have a man that they could look to as their spiritual or their worshiping object, the, 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 the representative that they can worship or focus their attention upon. Since he's gone, what do they have left? Well, let's make something. We'll make an object that represents this, this that replaces, I should say, replaces this Moses person who's now disappeared. So the people themselves have an idol already before the idol golden calf's even made. The idol wasn't the golden calf beforehand. What was the idol? Moses. Moses was their idol. Did God not already know that? Yes, he's God. Now God even told Moses early on with the burning bush time, hey, I'm going to make it such that they will treat you as a God. And he did. And that's what he did. He was referring, of course, at the time to Pharaoh, retreating Moses as a god. But they, the people themselves still followed Moses as if Moses was a god. They didn't quite, they just still didn't comprehend the nature of what Moses' character was, what his role was, compared to what God's role was. They still worshipped idols, not necessarily just the golden calf idol. They still worshipped the man, Moses, as an idol. So when God took Moses away for 40 days, what'd they do? They can't just look at the mountain with all the smoke and the clouds and the whatever else going on up there and the noise. They have to have an object to worship still. Since their object was taken away, they replaced with another one. Hence, Moses and God both say, these are stiff-necked people. They cannot bow down. They cannot relent the desire to worship 
or follow an object, whether the object be a human or the object be a golden calf, it makes no difference to them. They need something to follow still. Um, it, it's, it's interesting that so both these components, both the idol worship was taking care of this prior to the idol being made was already a problem. It was already an issue amongst them. Does that make sense? Hopefully it makes sense so far. Um, so both this, so, so that, as well as, and of course, the second component of that was the, was the grinding up the water and the idolatry uh, process that, uh, that was used. Okay, now this is reused again. I mentioned earlier, when does tradition uh, overrule the Torah? Well, it doesn't. But how persistent is tradition? Very persistent. Is it more persistent than the Torah? Sometimes, yes. So, First Kings chapter twelve. This process, this golden calf process, comes up again. We're talking what uh, close to wait, say nine hundred years later, eight hundred years later, whatever it was. Not quite about seven hundred seven hundred years later. Um, the same thing is again. So, seven hundred years the worship of the golden calf is still prevalent within inside of the people of Israel. So 700 years it persisted. So 1 Kings chapter 12, uh, jump down to verse uh, 25. 1 Kings 12, verse 25 says, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim and dwelt there. And By the way, Jeroboam was, in case you've forgotten, was the first king of the northern tribes of Israel. He was the Messiah, meaning he was anointed. Is anointed as king by a prophet. Uh, he was so the, the the whole kingdom was torn apart from Solomon due to Solomon's worship of multiple gods. His idolatry form of that uh, is form. Or sorry, harlotry in that form. Let's see, uh, Jeroboam, the new king of the northern tribes of Israel, uh, built Shechem in the mountains of, of Ephraim and dwelt there. He went out from there and built Penuel. Jeroboam said in his heart, "Now the kingdom may return the house of David." If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of Jehovah at Jerusalem, the hardest people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Therefore, the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up to the land of Egypt. Same phrase that Aaron uses. The gods have brought you up in the land of Egypt. And he set up one in Bethel and the other put in Dan. And this thing became a sin for the people and went, if all the people went to worship before the one at, at Dan. He made shrines in high places. He made priests for every class of people who were not the sons of Levi. He ordained, Jeroboam ordained a feast on the, the 15th day of the eighth month and so the seventh, like the feast of the seventh month in Judah, and offered sacrifice to the altar. So he did a Bethel, Saint. Sanctif- sacrificing it to the calves they had made in the Bethel, he installed the priest, the high places which he made. Yeah, okay, I'm going to stop. So, in this second, first Kings 12, we have a repetition of the same event that took place back with Aaron and the Israelites. So, I ask you, when does tradition overrule Torah? Never. But tradition persisted longer than the Torah did for the door of the tribes of Israel. And that the tradition of this golden calf, though was squashed, use the term loosely, or crushed by Moses, didn't actually stay crushed. They held on to it and carried it with them 
the idea at least, if not the physical object, carried the idea with them for 700 years and then did it again. Which then brings the next problem that Jeremiah had when he said, hey guys, we're down in Egypt, you've been kicked out of Israel, you ran away, and why aren't you changing your ways? How can you going back these offering these idols to offerings to, to pagan pagan stuff? And the people's response to him in Jeremiah, they said, We've always done this. We've always offered the pagan these, these things. We've, we, nothing's changed. The queen of the Sabbath, we always offered these things. And Jeremiah points out, so you expect a different result? You've always done the same thing and you're expecting a better result? That's ridiculous. But Tradition persists longer. It's interesting to note. So we have to watch out traditions, not say that they're evil, to point out that when tradition overrules Torah, Torah rules, tradition dies. But people, however, flip it. Torah dies. Eh, who cares if your old verses, your scriptures, or whatever, just some, some obscure thing. Tradition rules. We don't want tradition to rule. Torah rules. Tradition dies. That's how it's supposed to work. But unfortunately, humans tend to hold on traditions far longer than do the words that of God had, had given. Now also, it is not a coincidence, however, that Jeroboam chose Bethel and the tribe of Dan. Dan was already stuck in idol worship from uh, Moses, from, I think it's Micah, uh, I think it's Micah, Moses' grandson, Jonathan, with Micah, and they did a whole, Spiel about that in the book of, book, book of Judges, uh, discussing what they were already uh, stuck into. What time is it? It's uh, two. Okay, I'm gonna, the last few things here. Actually, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna skip a section. So, I'm gonna bypass um, a, 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 the, the the places regarding uh, certain components. One thing I want to bring up to you, however is a word choice Moses chose, which is really important. In verse 32, when Moses is addressed to God, when he, when he came back, um, uh, when he, he, he talked to them and said, hey, we, we got a problem. This is on uh, the verse 32 of chapter, uh, chapter 32, verse 32. Moses talking to God, it says, Now, if you would but forgive their sin, but if not, erase you now from the book you have written. There are a couple of words for forgive in, the, in Hebrew. This one is a unique one. The word choice here, the word means to carry. So, meaning of forgiveness of, oh, well, we'll cast it away, uh, carry it off, make it go away. This is not the word choice for that. He's asking God to literally carry their sins with him. Pick him up the burden off of them and hold on to it for himself. It's a unique word choice that Moses is choosing, as opposed to just casting it off. No, God to hold on to it. It's a unique word choice because it allows us to understand the nature of what God does to remove a sin. Now, what was God's response to Moses? Well, he points out that uh, whoever, verse 33, whoever has sinned against me, I will erase him from my book. Now go ahead and lead the people where I've told you, my angel will be before you. 
So God's response is, I'm not going to carry everyone's sin. However, God's original plan, response, gut reaction was to kill everybody off, just wipe them all out, and restart with Moses. So God clearly is willing to pick up the burden for some of the people, but not necessarily all of them. Now, I bring that up to you because there is a fascinating, probably the most profound statements that, uh, Messiah, that God gives to us in chapter 34, the nature of God. as to how, What is he doing when he's picking up the burden of this sin from most of them, but not all of them? 34 discusses that when God cites or is showing, revealing himself to Moses, he describes himself. 34, chapter 34, verse 6, it goes into, um, it says, uh, was it, uh, you have a past from the proclaimed, Jehovah, Jehovah, God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abundant in kindness and truth, preserver of kindness for thousands of those who, for, of generations, forgiver of iniquity, willful sin and error, and who cleanses, but does not cleanse completely. Recalling the iniquity of the parents, but the children and grandchildren, the third and fourth generations. So we have God's own description of himself. This is how he describes himself. Because he's the one who's citing all these things. Moses is just listening. Of course, Moses when he reuses it with him, but that's the, Moses is listening. So when God's saying, I will, uh, for kindness and forgive iniquity, and those, those there, but does not cleanse completely. So God is willing to take the burden these people, the children of Israel have, lift it off them, carry it for most, but not necessarily all of them. Some of them, he, we already said, he hits the plague. So he cleanses, but doesn't cleanse completely. There's an interesting character of him. So he'll forgive and cleanse you, but he's holding it. Meaning, it's still in his hands. So he didn't just throw the garbage can. He took it off of you, but he held on to it. Now, what's it take for him to throw it away? That's an interesting problem. He's holding on to it. So if I choose to say, okay, thanks, God, you get off of me, I'm going to go do it again. He's holding on to this. There is nothing stopping him. If I choose to return to my evil ways and just say, oh, you want it back? Here's your bowl of iniquity that I've been holding for you. So I have within inside me the ability to choose once God has removed this burden to then follow suit and improve or return to like the dog to his vomit, go back to where I was. Now, it requires some other act, something beyond him lifting off of me for me to convince him or someone to convince him to actually dump it in the garbage can over there to pour it out. That requires something that's bigger than I am, which, of course, how we get our Messiah, the idea of what Messiah can do. That Messiah's one, his butt erases me. He takes this and he's this, this stuff he burdened off of me. He's one, well, I paid for it, so now it's, it's getting cast away. So I require that part. Otherwise, there's nothing from God that would say, well, since you've returned to your vomit, you mean you screwed up again. I'll just dump it right back on you. I don't want to be dumped on me. I want, I want it thrown away, gotten rid of. That's a process which I would need to do. But the nature of God, which is where most of our Christian philosophies come from, the nature of disposing of 
what it is that we are, are, are guilty of. Not just removing it from us as carrying it, but actually throwing it out, destroying it. And the people, of course, required something of him to do so. They required, of course, in chapter 33, discuss the removal of ornaments and such, uh, showing humbling oneself. I won't get into all that. I'm going to jump to my tail end discussion because I want to jump to something that Apostle Paul discusses uh, regarding this particular Torah portion. Now, like I said before, the New Testament authors do a, a lot of work commenting on the Torah and different concepts listed there. Now, to be fair, it is completely wrong in every imaginable way to jump in the middle of a letter. Because when I'm writing a letter to somebody, I have a train of thought. Start here, from here, continue on, step by step by step. So if somebody jumps in the middle of my conversation and takes a chunk out of it, says, see, see, see what he said? That's messed up. You can't, you can't do it that way. Um, you can't just take something out of, uh, of context. It's wrong. You will get the wrong answer. So to be fair, the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, this actually starts more accurately in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's a process that Apostle Paul is discussing as walking them through their, their walk. And 2 Corinthians is a continuation of the first one and continuing them through. So to jump in the middle of it is wrong to do, but unfortunately, I don't have time to read 1 Corinthians all the way through to the whole picture. So I'm going to condense down heavily the earlier parts of the book, just so I can uh, chapter, just so I can get to where I want to talk about today. So uh, Corinthians, of course, discusses a very a, a lot, a lot, and it's a Second Corinthians about the nature of being uh, afflicted on behalf of others or, or or being unforgiving of other people. So the nature of not holding on to something that should be gotten rid of. First Corinthians discusses that as well of. This, the opposite of being holding on things that, that you shouldn't hold on to, meaning that a sinner that you should you should cast away, or your actions that you have not you've, that you are maintaining, just dispose of them. It continues on that said, now that you've disposed of them, what do you do? You do not go back to them. On the other hand, grabbing on new stuff that you shouldn't have is also not acceptable either. So basically, it's no different essentially, no different than uh, when they have the, the demon cast away from. Uh, uh, from uh, uh, what you call it, from a person who's possessed. Right, so goes out and he finds seven more just like him, and it makes the person reinfested even worse. So when you clean somebody out, you have to make sure what are you doing, what's your, what's your nature, how you're handling this scenario, how you handle the person. So in this section, we're discussing which is very interesting, which Apostle Paul discusses. Uh, so first, Second Corinthians, sorry, in chapter three uh, and chapter four, it discusses the nature of this covenant. Larry's screens pop up. That's all right. I think Larry, you actually should just screen. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, so in the nature of, of, of chapter one and chapter two of Corinthians, it talks about uh, uh, the sorrowfulness of your, of, of, of your actions. When you are sorrowful of them, you repent and you return and improve which what the Israelites had to do when they had the golden calf. They got their ornaments and made themselves repent, or it makes us feel sorrowful for what they had done. Now, and of course, in jumps to chapter 3 of Second Corinthians, jumps to verse uh, 6. Now, <clears throat> this is, again, I hate jumping the chapters, but we're going to write through as best we can. 
who also has made it, this is referred to Messiah, uh, to, to, to committing ourselves or, or committing versus him, the spirit of the living God, uh, over, over us compared to the, the, the written word. Who's made us, who has made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, and not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, the spirit gives life. We've all heard that statement before. But the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, referring to Moses, was glorious so the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because the glory of his countenance, which the glory was passing away. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For the ministry of the condemnation had glory. The ministry of the righteousness of exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect, but, but of the glory that excels. If what is passing away was glorious, what remains, it's much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we have used great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face, the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But the minds were hardened. For even until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with the unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory. But just as the spirit, or just by the spirit of the Lord. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness or handling of the word of God deceitfully, but manifestations of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is still veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds of the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, least the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus, Christ, Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus the Christ. We have this treasure and earthen vessels. The excellence of the power may be of God and not in us. We are hard-pressed at every side, yet not crushed. We may be perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about the body, the dying of the Lord, Jesus Christ, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. But since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what we have written, I believed, therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak. Know that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace having spread to many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I'm going to stop there for a minute. I might go back to you on.
So in this conversation that the Apostle Paul refers to, so Moses, of course, gets the opportunity to have this face shining thing and, and all those people say, wow, what's that? We're scared, whatever. He puts a big veil over his face so the people won't see it and scare him off. And he's pointing out, okay, so this whole face shining thing occurred, note, after Moses' second time on the mountain. That's where we see that. He comes back down and he has a face shining thing. The face shining thing shows up after Moses saw God's backside. So that presence of God and hearing this, the definition of God's defining himself, that event of his face shining event took place and then everybody could see. You could see this, this whatever it looked like, I don't really care. We had to put a veil on his face to hide it up. So it tells us that the face shining process, which Moses received after he went up to Ten Commandments for the second time, that face shining thing happened to him and everybody else was scared and they had to veil it to conceal it. Which was greater? The face shining thing Oh, the Ten Commandments that God gave. I mean, you don't answer the question. Which one did they notice? Note, everybody received the Ten Commandments orally back in Exodus, Exodus chapter 19 and 20. So they all heard the Ten Commandments. Nothing's different about them. So the written stuff God's writing down, it's the same thing, what he already said it verbally, out loud. It is God's testament of himself. But that didn't make Moses' face shine. What made Moses' face shine was the second time up and come back down in God's presence. So that's what made Moses' face shine, being in God's presence. When Moses was in God's presence, what did God do? He described himself. This is who I am. You know, merciful, compassionate, forgiving of iniquity, sins, all that for the thousand years. God describes himself. That's recorded in, in Exodus. This process which Moses experiences God's spirit close at hand, very, very close to him, resulted in Moses being very shiny or glowing of some form. That comes down, of course, then the people that say, hey, Something is weird about this guy. He's all bright. Apostle Paul's pointing out, hey, this brightness he had, and what did he bring down with him? He had the brightness of God's spirit with him, but he brought these tablets. These tablets really aren't even that great. I mean, yeah, they're important, don't get me wrong, but they themselves aren't the God up there that made his face shine. They're just tablets. They're just words. They're, they're instructions of how to live. But the face shining thing didn't come from the instructions. The face shining thing came from his presence with God, his time he had with God in person. Hence, Moses now has glory, not because he has the tablets, not because he, he wrote them all, or God wrote them down and God handed it to him, or even shared them. That wasn't what made Moses' face shine. What made Moses' face shine was his presence with God. That's what made his face shine. Therefore, the glory that Moses received, the face shining thing, came from his presence with God. So that God's presence produced the glory to Moses. Make sense? Hope that makes sense. He's pointing out that, hey, this tablet thing with all the Ten Commandments, uh, they themselves don't make your face shine. They're, they're, they're useful, don't be wrong, but they don't make your face shine. You want shiny faces? You need that same presence. You need the presence of God to make that happen. That's permanent. The tablet thing is not permanent. So don't focus your attention on the tablet thing. Focus your on, on the presence. You want the face shiny thing from Moses? You got to go be, be present with God. So if that's what we're after, because we all want to be close to God, right? That's the whole goal. That's what we want to do. Uh, so in, in this, sec- he, of course, jumps through this, all this process. He says, now, what does it take to make that happen? How do we get our face shining thing? How do we, how do we make, uh, make our glory, meaning glory, God glory within us, and we glory within God? How do we make that happen? It was, well, you have to change who you are, not because by your, by your tablets deal. Those are, those are going away. That's important to do because it has how you live your life. So you said to the tablets because we're, we're still flesh about human beings. But there's more important than just that. 
if you understand God, understand Messiah, that's when your face can shine. You, 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 you mean your glory, you not that people can see your face shining. We're not discussing a physical, like actual seeing with your eyeballs, referring to the glory that God has given to us. So the nature of this is our minds of this age, gods of this age have, have, have blinded people's minds so they don't understand that it's not just the actions of the Torah's instructions to keep you, make, make gives you glory, but rather requires something else. Because those following instructions are great, but they themselves don't produce glory within you. God's presence produced glory within Moses, not the, not, not, the, not the words that Moses received. So these trials, these tests, he points out that, yeah, we're pressed, we're crushed, we're destroyed, we're damaged, we're being hurt, we're being uh, pressed heavily, life's difficult, but we're doing it anyway. We'll teach you anyway. We're following you anyway. We're trying to instruct God that all things, we're doing this for your sake. They have grace abounding for everybody. The, the, the thanksgiving for the ground, abound for the glory of God. That our nature of forgiveness, because note, note, when Moses received God's presence, the face shiny thing, what did God say? He described himself. So if you want to be a face shiny thing, and you want the glory of God, you act like him. Be like him. Be like his description. Be like Exodus 34 describes him, saying, be the same as him. Be the one who is conscious, slow to anger, abundant in kindness and truth, preserver of kindness, of thousands of, of we don't do generations, we still, still, still do people, forgiving of iniquity, willful sin and error, and who cleanses. Now, we can't cleanse somebody, can we? We can't actually make somebody holy, but we can do all those other things. The cleansing process requires God himself to do. He's the one who actually makes you clean, Messiah. He makes you clean, takes the burden off and actually disposes it instead of holding on to it. Hopefully it makes sense. So Paul's objective is not to say, oh, we don't need the Torah. His objective is, no, no, no. You want to be like God, that, that portion that, that God discusses. Hey, this is who I am. This is what made Moses' glory so great. It wasn't the Ten Commandments. It was this process. So be like this. Then you will have the same glory. That, that's what our goal is. This Ten Commandments is an obvious thing. That's a natural thing you would do. So this is just a, how you live your physical life. That's not a big deal. That's important, but it's not, not your goal, not your end goal, not your objective. The objective is to be like the God that described, that gave those things to Moses. That's the objective. That's where Moses got his glory from God himself, the actual spirit. So be like that, and then you will succeed at this, which is exactly what Messiah did. He did all those things, every one of them. He did it beautifully. And what happened? He was glorified. Well done. He did a good job, right? So Moses, sorry, Messiah did the exact same thing that God describes himself down here. In Exodus 34. So Messiah follows this description really, 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 really well. It fits it to a T. What's our job? Follow suit. Follow his description. God, uh, Messiah points out, I do nothing unless my father tells me or shows me. What did the father show you right here? Well, he showed you Exodus 34, verses 6, 7, and 8, or 6, 7 at least. That's what, that's what God showed him. So what Messiah do? Do that. And you got it. Now, of course, be honest, that's hard for humans to do. Um, slow to anger and 
compassionate and gracious and kindness. It's a lot of work. It's not that easy. But if you can do that, you've done what Messiah did. You succeeded at it. I'm not saying you are Messiah. What is it? You followed suit to the path that he gave. Does that make sense? Hopefully it makes sense. Hopefully I don't lose anybody. So I'm tired. I don't know about all you. Any comments or questions about this so far? <laughs> Hopefully no comments or questions. There's a, there's a, a, uh, uh, a uh, Jeff put up, he put a bunch of text messages if you guys all got or not, these, these different uh, chats in his comments. He has uh, lists of ours, different quotations and such during what I was uh, discussing. But uh, it, 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 it's an interesting tour portion. Um, I happen to like it a lot because of, not just because of the stories, but because it's for the few times I get to hear and see exactly what um, God, how God sees himself. Now we can, we can say, well, God's like this or God's like that. But when God says, I am like this, that carries a gazillion times more weight than what I may say God is. I can tell you about God, but when he tells about himself, well done. That's helpful. Um, that's the most valuable thing you can get out of all this is when God describes himself. Any questions or comments? <sighs> I can. Yeah, I got a comment. Go for it. That was great. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Tammy, you have your hand up. Yeah, something you said about earlier about tradition, but the Torah versus tradition um, thing. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that I would maybe say to that is um, that not everything is in the Torah. Right. We right. don't want That's to admit true. that, but not everything, like for example, the laws of how to, one slaughters an animal. Not right. every specific detail on how one properly slaughters that animal for consumption is in the Torah. So right. there are traditions Mm -hmm. that kind of give us guidance on how to properly slaughter that animal so it is relieved of all of its blood and so on. All different things do, right. So what, where discernment comes in that we get from the Holy Spirit is which traditions have we been given that uphold the Torah and make the Torah better right. for us, make it easier for us to follow versus those traditions that are trying to Crush it or generate change it. the Torah or flip it on its head even. I mean, there are some traditions yep. in Christianity that basically take the Torah and flip it on and its flip head. It center. There's also one here too. Uh, I didn't get to it today, but in the, in the uh, was it uh, in the Shabbat one, we discussed it. It's something which, which uh, oh, where is it? It's verse, oh, where is it? Chapter, where, chapter and verse. Chapter, chapter 31, there's a tradition here that interprets a particular word in a Hebrew, which I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying it's probably wrong. Um, uh, verse 31, verse 12, sorry, verse 13. Most of your Bibles will probably read something along these lines. Uh, you see the children of Israel saying, surely you must observe my Sabbaths. While some of you may also say, may also read it. You see the children of Israel saying, um, but you must observe my Sabbaths. Or it might say, instead of surely it might use but, or maybe however, or the opposing side. Um, the Hebrew word there, uh, it, it, although it can mean but, meaning to contrast the opposite of what you see, generally speaking, it means to be holds fast, or for sure you will do something. So surely is more accurate description. However, 
Because it can be interpreted as a contrast, that's exactly what the Orthodox rabbinic tradition did. So they said, okay, since it's a contrast, we'll list every activity that was listed in the creation of the sanctuary, and you as a conscious Shabbat must do the exact opposite. And so they came up with 34 different lists of things, things 34, that, that the sanctuary building create, required men to do, and that you yourself must do the exact opposite of those 34 things. It's a good tradition. But as a result of that tradition, unfortunately for humans, it meant that you yourself, as long as you didn't move an object from the inside of your house to the outside of your house, you can do whatever you want with the object regarding moving it around. So because the act of making it was private to something that is public. So within the tradition of using this, this phrase, so you could have a tradition that is both on Jewish or Christian side that's completely warped. So as a result, they allow you to, you can rearrange your house, move your chairs, re-gut the interior, uh, do anything you want with your house, as a, as a joke, move a couch up and down the stairs all day long for like 20 or 30 times in a day. None of that's considered work on Shabbat. It's perfectly acceptable. But you cannot carry a pen or a key or a wallet or anything outside your door, your front door. So it's a bit ridiculous. Like why on earth would that be? Because again, you have a understanding of what the Torah says, but then because of a interpretation of it, now I'm not, I'm not saying they're evil. That's not the opposite. That's fine. Because of interpretation of what the Torah says resulted in a tradition that it allowed it to turn the Torah completely upside down on its head. Where it made no sense anymore. Um, so traditions are, have their places, but you, we have to compare them. Does, it, does, does the tradition outtake the, outstrip the Torah or vice versa? We have to watch that. Tradition tends to, as humans are, to outlast what is necessarily written. It's a nature of humanity. Now, my mom always did this. My dad always did that. And we continue on the process, whether it's right or wrong. It takes a long time for humans to say, well, okay, we've always done this, but is it right to evaluate? Is it right to do? That's not always easy. Does that make sense? Hopefully it does. Any other comments or questions? Hopefully that's about it then. Oh, no, we hey, have a uh, comment from the uh, Weitzel family. Go for it. Yeah. Hi, so um, I just want to show you, this is a half shekel. So it's about the size of a, so this is a nickel right next to it. That's a half shekel. So yeah, a little yeah, bit, a little bit. So it's about 0.4 ounces. So basically it's about, uh, you know, about $10 worth of silver at today's prices. Wow. Sorry. Trying to hold it. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's cool. So the idea is that um, that they actually didn't make half shekel coins; they made full shekel coins. So you would have to give one with your buddy. So each one coin was actually for two people. So oh, how funny! Kind of like, like so being removed. So instead of counting, you weren't actually counting people; you were counting groups of two people. Two people at a time. And then, um, yeah, so. So I just thought that was interesting. It just because it's like it's it's really interesting to me to actually be able to see the the you know cause like a shekel or a talon like it's hard to like quantify or imagine. But yeah, what does it mean? Small, it's basically a nickel. 
That's funny. Well, the size of a nickel, but it's worth. Uh, I don't know how much half shekel is worth, or uh, to be able to shekel yeah, rates are. Yeah. Well, the the new shekels they're just a fiat currency. So. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah, yeah. So a point four ounces, so ten dollars today. Okay. On the, okay. If, if you just buy bullion. So so it actually weighs more like a quarter, but. But yeah. yeah. That's funny. That's fine. That interesting. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. you picked that up? Where'd you, you get that one from? You get that one from? Uh, I think it's from the guest you It's uh, the guy who makes them. Ruben Prager makes them. Oh, I've heard of him. Okay, yeah. To write it down. I'm curious. Well, my father was looking for some of those many years ago. I'm not sure if he's still interested or not, but he was curious. But yeah. Any comments or questions? I did not discuss much regarding the angel that God was sending in front of them. Uh, note that this angel comes up a couple of times in the Torah. Uh, uh, in particular, God says it's a characteristic of the angel that is distinctly different that from God, and that the angel can forgive no one. So within the angel, there is no ability to forgive you for anything you do or that you didn't do, uh, or you were supposed to do and you failed to do it. He doesn't have that ability, but God in the hand has that ability, but the angel does not. So it is in Moses, the people's best interest, to have God with them, not the angel. Does that make sense? Because you want somebody who can forgive you to be around with you, not the one who can't forgive you, right? You don't want the non-forgiving one. Um, people have argued and debated about who the angel was. It's this guy or that guy or whatever. There's so many different theologies about that. It doesn't really matter. But uh, the angel, of course, it appears at least, does end up leading them, meaning at some point in time, the angel precedes them, which jo uh, Joshua runs into and he, they cross the Jordan River. And he says the angel, it says, are you, know, are you for us or against us? The angel says, neither. <laughs> the angel can't forgive you, so he's not for you or against you. He says, I'm only for God. I'm on God's behalf. The angel's sword was drawn. It's ready. He said, I'm not, I'm not going to help you, Joshua. I'm not, not going to help you. I'm not going to hurt you. I only do what God tells me to do. And so the angel has these, these, these instructions that he follows because if he didn't follow them, he wouldn't be an angel anymore. But on the other hand, you want one ideally, who can forgive you to with you, not one who cannot forgive you. The angel does not have that forgiveness within him. Um, it's not, 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 the authority was not given to him to do so. Uh, that's, I, the, the other parts I won't, I won't talk about today because it, it goes off topic. All right, well, I'm going to go ahead and uh, clue the prayer. Does you have something else you want to add to it? All right. <clears throat> Almighty God, our great Father, Thank you, Father, for being kind to each one of us, for, for your forgiveness and your wisdom. Father, we ask you to bless us and keep us safe. Help us make good decisions in our lives. Father, help us to teach our children, our grandchildren, great-grandchildren, the wonders of your works, the kindness you've shown us. Father, many generations have worshipped you before us, and many will come after. May you continue to bless them with your presence, that you will draw them close to you, close to your heart, to your way of life, your way of living, your truth. Father, for you are right, you are blessed, and you are always good. Help us, Father, to mimic those character traits. May, us, may we be like you, be good examples of you. We praise you, Father, and ask your blessing in Yeshua's name. Amen.
You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.